Remember when it's the lowest form of conversation. Hey, friends. You're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. Hope you're doing well out there. It's March. Marching ahead one year later after everybody's lives considerably changed. Hopefully a lot of you have come out better and stronger in your own special way. Today, as it pertains to The Sopranos, we're remembering Remember When, an episode written by Terrence Winter, directed by Phil Abraham. This, his career directorial debut. And as you know, led to many stints on top shows that followed this one in the timeline of prestige TV. This episode originally aired on April 22nd, 2007. HBO synopsis. With the heat turned up, Tony and Pauly head south to cool off. Meanwhile, Junior rekindles some of his old fire. Let's do it. Tony wakes up abruptly from a deep sleep. A theme in these remaining episodes begs the question, in the end, was it all a dream? Word Up Magazine, Salt and Peppa and Heavy D up in the limousine. Okay, I'll stop. But I do wonder if he was dreaming there sometimes at the end. There's a subtle nod to that notion then, but I'll save it for later. Speaking of dreams, though, I'm reading a great book right now called Chatter. A lot of interesting new developments in dream science, especially since the show. Stuff Elliot and Melfi would certainly have points of view on. It's all about creating psychological distance from our problems so we can address them better. One way to do that, without reading the book, is to be like Tony here. He throws cold water on his face. Saw that as a remembrance of Johnny Sack, throwing cold water on the idea of making Ralph a capo as restitution for the Tracy aftermath. T checks out his reflection in the mirror and doesn't know whether or not he likes what he sees. Staring down a vortex of self-referential processing. Q. Mac DeMarco's Chamber of Reflection. We hear an engine revving outside, of course, coinciding with T's stress response pistons firing off and booming in his head. It's Polly. I know, as if things weren't bad enough, right? He's storming up the driveway with the star ledger under his arm. There's a twist on an old trope, a variation on a theme. Salvitro's truck's in the background, a fixture now, as if it were his only remaining job, and a reminder to T, no matter how bad I've got it, that motherfucker's got it worse. But back on Polly, Can't remember the last time we saw him storming up first thing in the morning. Something's got to be up. Something likely to do with money. Inside, Carmela's having trouble with her espresso maker. 
offers Pauly regular coffee instead. He'll pass, but thanks her for trying. Guy's got a goddamned opinion about coffee now? That's right. Ever since 46 long. In that case, good on him for holding his tongue on the boss's wife when what he was probably thinking was, nuke that Joe so it's hot. Tony comes down, and Polly apologizes for the ambush, tacitly acknowledging Tony's irritation about it, but offers him the morning paper as an olive branch of sorts. Carm is off to meet the new realtor. Somebody's got to sell that spec, right? And Polly gives T a look like he needs to get down to business. He didn't come there to critique Carmela's cold brew. They go outside. But what about the parabolics? Polly says he got a call from Sergeant Danny over in Newark PD. First name basis. Must be on the take, right? Tony walks over to some tomatoes that have been growing out back that didn't die on the vine. The feds are doing some digging over by Branford Avenue. That's over in Union, New Jersey. Polly makes a trigger with his hand because it doesn't look like it's registering with Tony. Remember when is the name of this episode, but there are some things you'd like to forget. This, for Tony, being one of them. Willie Overall, the bookie, Labor Day, 1982. There's a standalone episode waiting to happen. Cut to jackhammer sounds, the quintessential sound of Tony under the gun or under pressure. First the revving engine, now this. This whole episode trending toward a deconstruction of T. Only Melfi's nowhere in sight. The FBI is doing a real number on a residence, pulling up chunks of brick. Who tipped them? Polly and Tony watch from the car. Polly says somebody called Sergeant Danny. Says Larry Brazy's been talking. Always looking to throw someone under the bus, Polly is. Assure his hands are clean from the outset. This must have something to do with the arrest last episode. But why would he take it back to 1982? Just then, Tony flashbacks for a split second. No use setting this up over time, this being the end and all. So, efficiency. An overhead light is swinging. A bloodied guy pleads for his life. Then two clips. Then two guys burying him. You made your bones with that prick, eh? Yeah. Their inner-city version of Uncle Pat's, looks like. Polly says, you were shaky a little, but you did good. Note, he's talking an awful lot, Polly. Also, he knows an awful lot about what's going on. He was there, I get it. And I'm not saying he was wired for sound, but just kind of saying the thought that he's wired for sound exists. Everybody's suspect at this point. And an etu brute, or Judas-style ending, is not off the table. If anything, it'd give a lot of credence to all the Last Supper-type imagery throughout the series. Though, 
without getting too far ahead of ourselves, we do, in fact, get a Last Supper of sorts. All this is to say, I remember being immediately suspicious of him too, at this moment, even before it's directly addressed with Beansy later. He keeps going, 25 years, possible there's nothing left, bones, teeth. Polly wonders what they're going to do. We're going to pack our toothbrushes. They're going to lamb it. On that, Carm's packing for Tony. He recites the playbook, says he'll call her in a few days on the alternate cell. Any emergencies, call Sailor Bobby. And if you need more cash, call me. She emphasizes she knows the drill. But him reciting instructions is going to become another theme, as we'll see. This is like a practice fire drill at school. You know, it's not like I want a trip to Paris. I find myself saying that just in a slightly different context, slightly lower stakes and all. My version of lambing it, especially this year, is breaking away from the kids for a few hours to work in the studio. Over to Pauly, also packing. For himself, though, multiple pairs of the same white shoes. The lock on those for a beat, of course, sets him up for a fate similar to Johnny Sachs. Both had cancer. Both found the Ginny Sack joke to be punishable by death. Observation, Polly's closet is immaculate. Note the difference. With T, everything's in drawers, put away. With Polly, everything's hanging. And you know he probably doesn't have a maid. He likely does that shit himself. Plastic wrap on the furniture is my only basis for that claim. But still. Back on T and Carm, she's worried. There's a lot of that this season, too. In effect, serving as a surrogate for the viewer in that regard. Says to make sure he doesn't forget his sunblock. Nice reference to Carmine Sr. He says it's nothing. A little gambling charge. Better to be safe than sorry. Note, he couldn't tell her the truth. Again, debts from his past are now coming to collect. But he opts to compound the lies. He's a master at his craft, don't get me wrong. But the constraint of finality here gives you an uncomfortable sense that all of this is going to come back to encircle him. We get the argument that her knowing would possibly incriminate her or bring her into the fold where she could potentially create more havoc. But still, at some point at their age, as she'll say in a moment, compound interest is usually a good thing. But with lies, a trail of slip-ups awaits. This is what life is still like at our age. Great reveal. When are we going to be done with this thing? Indicating she understood her bundle of goods to be something different back when they were kids. Tony looks away, but mentions his tomatoes are just coming in. Very symbolic, right? Those tomatoes. Not only indicating his commitment to the Pomodoro technique by breaking up moments like these between Carm and earlier with Polly into smaller ones, 
But Remember When proves to be a big love letter to The Godfather. Here, the tomatoes, of course, Don Corleone playing with his grandkids in the garden level symbolic. As overt an indication as we're going to get that Tony's time is, in fact, nearing its conclusion. Speaking of people nearing the end of their journey, next we're on Junior, visiting with old friends, former soldiers in his crew to boot. They say he looks good. The fuck does that mean? I'm fucking incarcerated, for Christ's sake. The writer's favorite person to write for, and it shows every time. Every chance they get. That's the point, Uncle June. All things considered is all they meant. Their comment, the medicine, the aircept, it agrees with you. That's Alzheimer's meds. Cognition-enhancing medication. Alzheimer's are not. Nootropics are increasingly in demand. Smart drugs. Both obtained on the street and through prescription. Though the former is the more common way, especially among younger people. I know nothing about it. Just saying. One of the guys looks immediately familiar. Uncle Pat? Why, yes. Yes, of course. A great way to extend his storyline through to the finale. A guardian at the gate, if you will, over Junior and his mysterious treasure trove, as we'll see later. Junior says these guys got to get him out of there. The smell alone is killing him. Was it the place or a specific patient? Also, if he thinks that place smells bad, he probably has no idea what he's in store for. He asks about Tony. Note, he's still cognizant of who he is at this point. Will that hold up until the end? What do you hear from my nephew, he asks. Uncle Pat says he got a card for his birthday. Clearly not what Junior was hoping to hear. Who says he's still waiting for an apology. Which one of you is going to tell him? Uncle Pat says they'll figure it out. Clearly doesn't have the same balls as Bobby to remind him that he shot Tony. To quote Tony, were he to catch wind of that request, apologize for what? Uncle Pat leans in. He's got a plan. Old guys remembering when they could actually pull shit like this off. If you made an appointment with an outside dentist, he explains, they'd meet him there and sneak him off in their car. Also, Uncle Pat knows a thing or two about teeth and bones, especially at his farm. So nice touch with the dentist there. Then, dinner's announced. Enchiladas tonight. Junior's happy, gets up. Again, things could be a lot worse for him than Wyckoff. But as always, we don't know what we don't know. The other guy, Beppy, remember from the pilot, hands him an envelope. Says it's from the electrician's union. Junior's still the de facto boss of this thing, even if it's only for appearances. Nice to see he's got a couple few loyalists left. Uncle Pat speaks to him in Italian with no translation, but I think he said, you need anything? Holler at your boy. 
It's all in the eyes. Over in the mess hall, Junior tells the guy next to him, that's Carter Chong, not to let anybody touch his plate. This is actor Ken Leung, currently killing it on HBO's industry. Also, this episode on The Sopranos led to a 45-episode run on Lost for him. Junior goes over to talk to one of the aides that works there. It's inaudible. Then comes back and speaks inaudibly to Carter. First the Italian, now this? Carter gets up and walks off. And we're left with Junior smirking, evidently taking Uncle Pat's plan and staging one of his own. Remember when I used to run North Jersey with my kid brother? Next, we see the fruits of Junior's plan. He managed to get a card game going, used the proceeds of his kick to inject it back into the money supply of the economy. A makeshift executive game of his very own, on his fucking terms, trying to die as he lived over here. Warren, Johnny Sack's second opinion, would be proud. An aide comes over, asks for 60 bucks. For sodas and fucking candy? The in-app currency of this game? Fucking stick-up artist. What? You think Junior's up to speed on the inflation rate circa mid-2000s? Think he's going through the back pages of The Economist and drawing trend lines in between correspondences? We see that Junior's new friend Carter is the dealer. This guy increasingly looks to be his bacala in the Bastille. The aide gets hot. Don't count my money, nigga. You make it 500% of these motherfuckers. He forks over the money, and the orderly is very pleased with the outcome of this transaction. Successfully exacting his own con from a career con man. And one who shot Tony Soprano to boot. Junior, of course, is disgusted. But what's he going to do? Impressed he pulled it off, too. He's come a long way since last season. The meds are doing something. He's practically one pill away from Bradley Cooper in Limitless. As the terms of engagement are recited, half the gang has no clue what's going on. That's probably why he picked them. Assuming, of course, he's on his A game. One of the guys laughs at the rules, and Junior goes street on him. Speaking of streets, next we're out on a freeway. A van blazes by. The camera pans to a sign. Hitchhikers may be escaping inmates. Read that as T would rather have one of those as a driving companion than fucking Polly. The two of them are on the road someplace. We still don't know where yet but they're likely headed south, just like the old days. Of course, we know this too well. The two of them in the car together We're expecting Polly to go off the rails at any moment and for T's patience to be tested. Willie fucking overall. Remember driving around with that prick in the trunk? Their own little version of the opening scene of Goodfellas. Right before AJ was born, right? was actually Meadow. But yo, all these implicating questions. Again, not saying he's wearing a wire or that he would. But we're so well-trained at this point 
It's in the back of your mind is all. So here we go. Memory lane. Full force Gale. Remember Lugers after? Of course, that's Peter Lugers in Brooklyn for the uninitiated. Remember when you ate there for the first time? He continues, me, Puss, Ralphie. <laughs> Interesting how he lumped himself in with a group of dead guys right there. Tony's already kind of bored, but not saying it. Lamming it over his first kill with Paulie of all people, wouldn't have been the script he would have written. But what's the saying? Tony plans, Chase laughs. We see they're driving down I-95 South, around exit 5A, assuming Maryland because they're close to Chevy Chase. It's raining, no music all this time. It's noticeably absent. No podcasts. Living hell. Chevy Chase. What ever happened to him? Referring, of course, to the actor, who, to answer his question, is still very active across TV and film. But the essence of Paulie's question was the sign that read Chevy Chase, a tonier section of Montgomery County in Maryland also known as one of the metro stops on my way to work for my first job after college, just months before I discovered this show for the first time. Tony's thinking about something. He's got that whole pensive while driving thing down cold. Asks Pauly about Ralphie. Remember when he made that joke about Ginny? Who the fuck would tell Johnny about that joke? In other words, how many blabbermouths do you know? Paulie plays dumb, maybe now regretting invoking Ralphie's name a moment ago. Tony's look afterward, the way he shrugs it off, hilarious. Because he's just getting started. Almost rises to be as annoying as Polly himself. Notice I said, almost. Polly looks out the window the same way he did that time after the Pine Barrens' aftermath. Symmetry. Was T ruminating about this for a long time and just waiting for the right moment to corner Polly? Or did it just occur to him right then and there? Back on the card game. Junior's overseeing from afar. His faculties are slowly coming back to him. The way it was the way it should be. The game is a shit show, to say the least. Half the guys can't accept the hands they're dealt. That's true in more ways than one, as that's partially why some of them are there to begin with. Note to self. The others can't even discern what their hands are. Might as well hand them pieces of uncooked macaroni. Junior lightens the mood by channeling his inner Feech Lamana starts cracking jokes. Everybody laughs. One person cries. Then somebody knocks. A former professor who becomes a bit of a foil for Junior. Or more aptly for this show, he's Junior's arch nemesis. Since we're remember-wenning everybody over here, can't leave out Vito. 
Junior turns him away. High rollers only. Keep walking. Which is only more insulting to the good professor when you consider the players Junior's assembled. A group Charles Barkley might call a bunch of Tito Jacksons. Well, listen, let's, let's be realistic. Uh, the Miami Heat are Michael Jackson, uh, Dwayne Wade, and a bunch of Tito Jacksons. They're not very good. They put all their eggs in the basket on the free agent market. And this year is just a waste. Junior berates him some more. The pride of Rutgers slits his wrist in the faculty lounge after he stabs the dean. One indication, I'd say, at a minimum, that this guy's not one to trifle with. At the very least, know enough to keep him content, lest he ruin the game by alerting the officials that run the place. Carter gives off a sinister smile. While we're reminiscing over here, let's talk about arcs. Specifically here, Carter's arc. Learning the ways of Junior and desperately seeking approval from a father figure. Which, as we'll see, leads to the opposite of improvement and progress. At least some of us know when we need help. Get the fuck out of here, you Junior pushes him out, and it's revealed that these guys are playing in the craft room via the sign on the front of the door. Mentioned because an origami instructor is going to get bent out of shape about this a bit later. See what I did there? Origami bent out of shape. He offers another joke to the man who's crying. That doesn't work either. But again, Junior's in rare form. Is it the meds? Some kind of regressive plateau? Like the way the Titanic bobbed for a bit before plunging into the ocean? Just then, another aide comes in to inspect. As predicted, the professor rats Junior out. This aide has a problem with the game on account it's too stressful for the patients. Junior manages to land another joke to try and show that everybody's hanging in can handle the rigors of five-card stud. Carter laughs, and you can see why he keeps him around. Always laughs at his stupid jokes. Channeling some Carmella there. Remember when she roasted Tony about everybody having to laugh at his stupid jokes because he was the boss? Later in Junior's room, he's watching the Weather Channel, something about Crater Lake National Park. That's in Oregon portending a storm of sorts, no doubt, the likes of which he's never seen. Note, of course, the similarity between Carter and Crater. What? You're going to get cute now? I'm just saying. He's enjoying some of the candy contraband from earlier, and Carter comes in with some tea for him to wash it down. He hands the kid his taste, Job well done. But when he reluctantly takes it, Junior makes that a teachable moment. Starts telling him about his old man, Tony's grandfather, the stonemason. Remember when T told Meadow about him inside the church? Anyway, he, Junior, was offered money by a rich lady once and turned it down politely. His dad smacked him across the face. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth kind of thing. Says he had to walk home that day from Essex Fells to Newark. That's almost 12 miles or three hours 
of walking. Carter Beams says he was from Essex Fells. A rich kid, huh? A younger junior certainly would have contrived a way to tap that well. Put Beppy on it. That kind of thing. One of the players comes in, wants his buttons back on account that Warren, that jacked, Paul Bunyan-looking orderly, said they weren't supposed to be gambling. Warren in real life was played by a guy called Stink Fisher. The Jets signed him to a contract in 1993. Guy had the makings. Whatever happened there? By the way, what's the significance of those buttons at Wyckoff anyway? Why do they exist in the first place? Craft project? Or were they strictly Junior's brainchild to get the game off the ground? I'm perseverating a bit because I immediately saw some connectivity. Panic buttons in mental hospitals on one hand, and getting your button in this thing of ours on the other. Carter goes into a story about getting the highest grade in the class on something in the third grade. There's three again. He was so proud, showed it to his dad, who could only say, what happened to the other four points? At which point he unloads a couple of fuck yous into the air, then punches into his hand twice. Not quite mirroring, but suggesting a parallel here to Tony and Junior. Never had the makings of a varsity athlete. Junior just blankly stares. Just like he did every time he got a reaction out of T. The oddness of this pairing becoming more apparent with each passing scene. Something about the way Junior is jumbling past relationships together and rolling them into one here. Speaking of odd couples, from one to another, back on Tony and Polly. Polly's passed out, head bobbing. All that talking is exhausting. The classic rock radio station that's on says they're near a place called Fredericksburg. That's in between D.C. and Richmond. Tony says they should stop. Why do you wake up Polly? Start that motor again. Remember that place? That dive with the fucking massage beds in Culpeper, Virginia? Once a Confederate stronghold, by the way. Polly does remember. The Haven Air. Ah! <laughs> we met those 16-year-old hillbilly who was near the taxi stand. <laughs> TripAdvisor, not shockingly, doesn't include it on its list of 10 best hotels in Culpeper. That, by the way, is a ways west from Fredericksburg and well off their I-95 course. But hey, hillbilly whores? What more need be said? And so, that's where they decide to go. Like old times. They should know better, though. Especially Tony. The second time around is never as good as the first. Thankfully, modernity came through and saved them from an untenable situation. When they pull up, they don't recognize the place. Hillbillies replaced with Puerto Ricans. They ask Lin-Manuel Miranda what happened. Yes, that Lin-Manuel Miranda. The trifecta 
of singular icons finding their way early on on The Sopranos. First, Michael B. Jordan, then Lady Gaga, and now Lin-Manuel Miranda. Like, where or when has something like that ever happened? Something even close. Anyway, Lynn says he doesn't know. I don't know. Fucking guy. I mean, the guy has it in him to break into song and tell a story about what happened to the old place. He's throwing away his shot. Imagine what Hesh could do for him. If only T were able to hear something. Alas, they find another stop. And Mr. Spears checks in for two king rooms. The same name T used once when seeing a new therapist back in season two. He asks for two-fifths of Glenlivet to be sent up, his drink of choice, recall, when traveling through Costa Mesa. Unfortunately, this place doesn't, quote, do bottles. I believe liquor distribution in Virginia is state-run, beer and wine excluded. Fine, they say. A couple of steaks, then, with baked potatoes. Au contraire, again. Wraps and salads only after dinner. O for two on hospitality for Culpeper, Virginia. But they learn of a place called Buckingham's. Most important feature, it's open, and the nachos come recommended. At Buckingham's, Polly tells Tony about he and his dad did this trip a thousand times back in the 60s. A perfect setup to get a glimpse of one in the movie later this year, maybe. There was a dog track Johnny had a piece of down south. He mentions a 59 Cadillac Eldorado with the fins, the Biarritz. Tony used to steer it. That model was 225 inches long, virtually the same length as a current Escalade ESV. And it cost the equivalent of a $70,000 vehicle today. Paulie starts telling a story about how he was driving it when he was 20. A kid, for Christ's sakes, gets pulled over in the deep south, scared shitless. They're Italian, after all. He's got no driver's license. Always takes me back to getting pulled over in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, early in the morning while on my way to Colorado for school. Being asked to sit in the officer's car while he wrote me a speeding ticket. He asks Johnny Boy what to do. Relax. Tell him your cousin's on the job. So Paulie tells the cop his cousin's a state trooper too. And his name's Barney Fife. Andy Griffith's show over here. Of course, that's a reference to a character from that show played by Don Knotts, who won five Emmys for that role. Like most of you, I know him primarily from his run as Mr. Furley on Three's Company. Just like Paulie, actually as we'll see a bit later. Anyway, that comment results in a right cross. And I probably would have preferred that to sitting in a creepy-ass Wyoming cop's car, living my own version of No Country for Old Men. The end result? Johnny Boy paid the cop 100 bucks 
to let them go. A lot of money in those days. Probably a month's salary, Polly says. He says he remembers Polly in those days. His dad used to threaten to send him up to Uncle Polly. Guy had a rep. He used to be afraid of him. Now he can barely stand him. But one thing he has over everybody else, and Tony knows it, he's perhaps the last true vestige of his father, the closest sentient being in his orbit to Gary Cooper. How ironic is that? Polly tells T how much Johnny loved him. The night you were born, the only time I ever saw him cry. T says, it's funny, I never knew where I stood with him. Like, he didn't believe in me or something. Again, shades of varsity blues. And that same dynamic, of course, exists between him and AJ now. But also, that grooming, in effect, arguably made him a better leader. There's tremendous leverage in underlings not knowing where they stand, if wielded correctly. Polly says, come on. He gave you the Willie overall thing when you were 22, before I even had a driver's license, for Christ's sakes. Perhaps not liking the reason he's lambing it in Culpeper, Virginia, of all fucking places, he throws money on the table and walks out. Turns out, you eat, I pay, applies to Polly here too. A hundred bucks. The same amount Johnny Boy dropped on the cop. Funny thing about inflation. Used to get you out of trouble with the cops. Now it buys you a couple drinks and bad nachos with questionable company. The next morning, Polly's chatting it up with patrons and the complimentary breakfast line. Free dinners, free breakfasts. Guy's practically Charlie Sheen. All this winning. Talking tailpipes, mufflers, warranties. Tea comes over. Time to go. Polly says bye to his new friend who tells him to enjoy Miami. That's where they're headed. Some stranger in the Danish queue knows more than we do. Until now. T doesn't love that. What the fuck is wrong with you? What? You tell some fucking gooby your life story? You're supposed to be laying low. Rich, right? Coming from a guy in therapy who does nothing but talk there? Paulie's solemn, defeated, says he's going to go grab a Danish for the road. Literally grabs enough food to feed the Bacchus Atrials any given afternoon. And then some. Procedural question, sidebar. What does laying low actually do for them at this point? If they're busted, they're busted, right? Being away isn't going to change that, other than delaying arrests and the whole judicial process. I mean, what's he going to do? Flee to Cuba? Back on Junior and Wyckoff, everybody's dressed up. Well, comparatively speaking, but not Junior. He's rocking his robe as if he were at home with Bobby. It's visiting day at the zoo, Junior says. Nice reference to the band of the same name. Episode 10, season one, 
A hit is a hit. Don't feed the shit rules. <laughs> That's the idiots. Carter sees his mother and tenses up. Highly relatable. Battle him of the tiger mother hadn't yet come out. But Carter's mom fit the bill before she spoke a word. He introduces Junior as Mr. Soprano. Corrado, please, kisses her hand. She's shocked and appalled at the cultural faux pas, but asks how he's doing. He says he'd complain, but who'd listen? So accurate. What I consider a top-shelf sopranoism. He leaves them be so he can reply to make-believe correspondences. At least it felt that way. Feigning self-importance, because no one was there to visit him. The mother asks about her son's aggression toward other patients. She thinks it's because of the gangster, as she calls him. Carter defends him. Says you shouldn't believe everything you read. Then brings up his own dad and the stuff written about him. But, like a true immigrant, she says, that was the Wall Street Journal. Not some rag like the Star Ledger. Which makes it okay, even if it's bad. His dad made it. A made man in his own right. Carter brings up his past. His turn for Remember When. Going to MIT. Finally learning how to be social. Assert himself. And now that's a negative? He storms off like a typhoon on the Weather Channel. Over to Miami. They're pulling up to a swanky spot in a Mercury minivan. Great juxtaposition. Another head-scratcher. Laying low is one thing. Mercury minivans is another thing entirely. Especially when we're out here talking about 59 Eldorado Biarritzes. Sill calls. It's not good. Feds found a body. A skeleton. Tony takes it pretty well, considering, though. Better than he is having to spend every waking moment with Polly. Tell Silvio Jaws won't shut the fuck up. Just then, T looks over at Polly, who's cracking jokes with the bellhops and valets, instead of checking in. At which point, he eye-rolls us back over to Junior, who's dictating a letter to Carter. He did have outstanding correspondences after all. We discover he's writing to Dick Cheney on account they share a similarity in the form of accidental gunplay. Of course, referring to the notorious hunting incident back in 2006, where the former vice president accidentally shot a friend while quail hunting in Texas. More like acquaintance, it was later learned, but I'm going to get cute with semantics now. The victim, an attorney called Harry Whittington, has never confirmed whether Cheney actually ever apologized. Another point of similarity, if true, between Junior and Cheney here. Of course, not apologizing for shooting Tony. Guys are practically pen pals and don't even know it. Just then, the orderly, the one on the take, comes in to let Junior know he needs to lay off the card games for a while. He was snitched out by the professor he was antagonizing, as anticipated. Guy took it all the way up to the Wyckoff Supreme Court and got an injunction. But just then, 
the orderly hands over a bunch of photos for Junior to sign. These matter-of-factness juxtapositions are as fluid as a Peter Cat recording company groove. Apparently, there's a market for autographed pictures of the man who capped Tony Soprano, an eBay cottage industry. Imagine what those might go for on the NFT market right now. Anyway, card games or not, that's the deal if he wants to keep getting those sodas. Junior's been had. Back in Miami, Tony and Pauly are at dinner with Beansy. Guys are having one night in Miami of their own. Tony gifts him cleaver hats, his new default gift to people, as we'll see. Beansy asks for the DVD, too. But that never occurred to Tony. Or maybe he doesn't want him to see it. Doesn't want that idea to spread any more than it already has. Before their guests arrive, Beansy gets into some business. There's some Cuban guy who knocks over trucks. Jackson. His last load was American Standard. Sinks, toilets, tubs. Again, with the commentary of robbing something wholly American. Turning American consumerism on its ear. Tony's into it. And Beansy says he'll connect them. New goods, American or not, sold for way less than face value? 50 cents on the dollar? De-risked by having another entity procure it? Great business for T to be in. A lot of people out here talk about strategic partnerships. This is the very essence of that. Next, Beansy slides over a manila envelope. Money too? No. Memories. Inside, first, it's an old picture of Polly, And he's jacked. He wasn't lying. Remember when he told T about his guns when he was in the coma? Mickey Pinto took that in 1963. The crew had an official photographer back then, too? T was right from the start. He really did come in at the end. Johnny Soprano had his very own Pete Souza. Tony admires the leather wristband, says he remembers getting one just like it. Wanted to be a tough guy, just like his Uncle Polly. This combination of flattery and frustration is interesting, only further confusing the issue of Polly's survival. The next picture is one of Tony's dad and Uncle June in front of Satrials. Again, could have been taken by Herb Ritz or Scott Schumann of the Sartorialist, but Tony can barely look at it. Folds it up and hands it to Polly. Great connectivity back to him and Junior, though. How is that dynamic going to shake out? Will it shake out? Arguably, it not getting closure would be more true to life and therefore certainly the Sopranos. Let's see. The Biarritz is in the picture too. Tony says they were just talking about that. Then Beansy's wife calls and he steps away or wheels away, sorry, to take it. Tony encourages him to stay, but he says he has to empty his bag while he's at it. The look on Polly's 
face, thinking, oh, <laughs> like when he saw his real ma's exposed, veiny legs. Oh, my mom. He pisses in a bag now. Jesus Christ, fucking kill me now. Beansy forever being linked to the show in an unforgettable way, thanks to Richie April. Some people on the show became legend by doing 20 fucking years in the can, and not a peep. Others, like Beansy, get run over and live to tell about it. And all things considered, looks like he's doing well for himself. A triumph over tragedy case study. Next, over to a TV. Junior watching commercials, enjoying Kit Kats. His phone rings. It's Uncle Pat inquiring about the dentist plan. At first, Junior doesn't remember that or who he's talking to. Is he taking his meds? Is he faking it? The back and forth of all that, of course, is a big part of this episode. Junior eventually recalls, wonders where he'll lam it. Pat says the safe house. I don't know. You and your kid brother are the ones that ran North Jersey. I'm just Pat Blundetto over here, a once loyal soldier. Junior says the time isn't right. He's being watched. Call back later. If there's any chance of this happening, that rogue Rutgers professor has to be taken out of the equation. Card game is one thing. If he sensed this, forget about it. But how? But Pat's in a time crunch. Says he's going back to Sarasota soon. It's now or never, pal. Wait. Pat got out? Did Ponte Corvo know that? That he was one of the few, the proud, to actually retire? Meanwhile, in Miami... Beansy's talking about back in the day now, too. Here we go. You didn't make a move in North Jersey without this guy up your ass. Pointing to Polly. Polly reciprocates the compliment. That's what it was, right? Calls Beansy a stand-up guy. We'll come back to that choice of expression a bit later, by the way. But then backs off. Inappropriate, though benign. More champagne, more memory lane girls laughing, all the makings of a varsity-level kind of night. But Tony sighs, the weight of this clearly exhausting him ever since he was reminded of Junior. Those little things that make us turn inward and destroy whatever vibe we were in the midst of having. Loved Matt Zollersites' assertion to the show being a documentary in many ways. The vagaries of Tony's mind and moods as here is a classic example of that. Remember when we rented the house down the shore? Polly again, with the bed bugs, Carlo, Silvio, Frankie Napoli. Frankie who? Polly also then references a sunny spins from the Bronx and the mysterious drowning of a hippie kid. That's two drownings in one season. Will there be a third? Wait for it. Everything in threes, right? Tony looks at Polly. There he goes again, telling his fucking life story around civilians. 
Beansy asks if he's okay. He says, yeah. The fuck else he gonna say? Actually, one more thing. One more great and profound thing. Paulie comments too. You sure, T? You're being kind of quiet. Ask us, uh, remember when it's the lowest form of conversation. He walks off. The music. The buzzkill is palpable. He asks one of the girls to dance. The other two stare blankly at the rest of the table. Now, a word on that statement. I'm inclined to agree. So much so that I've used it in my conversational arsenal more times than I can remember. But I would offer a caveat. Talking about the past is one thing. Certainly low-hanging fodder to pass the time. A form of yearning to recreate past moments and memories in the midst of otherwise waning or fragile or simply evolved relationships. But thinking about remember whens in your mind, while driving, while walking, while showering, whatever, can be valuable and necessary to unlock or remove kinks in our own way. And I feel like we're inclined to remember remember whens, in our mind anyway. So might as well harness them and convert them to action or some good. Speaking of harnessing and converting to action, the next day over in Brooklyn, Phil's dining with Doc Santoro. Says he's acknowledging him as the boss now. Even told DeLeo Construction as much. But wait, that's it? 20 fucking years for this? For Doc Santoro? Whatever happened there? Just last episode. This has got to be a ruse, right? Doc's not happy. Already flexing. DeLeo's a problem. Note Butch at the table by himself behind Phil. Just love the optics of that. Phil slides over an envelope. Your taste? Doc asks about Phil's wife, then reaches over to taste some of the food on Phil's plate. Speaking of tastes, I'll have some of what you're having too. Makes the timing of the question about Patty right there interesting and questionable. The cut to Butch looking up and over is fantastic. Shock and awe. It's the same face Phil gave when he saw Johnny Sack cry. His estimation of him as a man right there, even if only just a little, had to have fucking plummeted. Phil says, go ahead. And Doc sticks a fork into his plate. The same way Butch would want to stick one through somebody's lung. Or Richie might have wanted to stick one through Tony's eye. Fucking disgrace. But again, is this all part of a greater play at work? Back over at Wyckoff's, groups doing origami or some shit, while Junior and Carter are playing checkers. Note they're not playing chess. And for that, this show will come back to bite them. And it won't take long. The Rutgers professor comes over and mocks them 
Checkers, the thinking man's game. Why does checkers get a bad rap compared to chess? Fundamentally, chess has many more permutations. A great line about the two games that stuck with me a long time ago chess is like looking across an ocean, checkers is like looking down a well. Junior gets reprimanded for his language. He's not going to let Professor Rutgers land a clean blow without swinging, whether fisticuffs or with diction. The professor reaches across their table for the chess set. In Junior's prime, guy would have been done right there and then. Either way, even today, Junior isn't interested in moving. Remember when Omar said, yo, I think you're done for, to Jackie Jr.? He'd have said the same thing if he were right here, too. But the professor is undeterred. You don't intimidate me. How the mighty have fallen. That expression, of course, has biblical origins. Samuel 1.19. It's meant to convey the decline of a once great individual. But usually, as here, it's used ironically or insultingly. Junior knows that, knows as much, and throws water on his face. And then goes straight old school, gives him a beatdown. Remember when we saw him go berserk like that in the flashback in season one? Down neck? Carter loves every minute of it, even eggs him on. There's symbiosis again, revelatory. Simultaneously helping and ruining each other in different opportunistic ways. Next up, the head of Wyckoff is having a sidebar with the origami teacher and the orderly on the take, who's vouching for Junior, even though Junior keeps calling him by some other name. Just got to know how to talk to him is all, he explains. Guy's trying whatever he can to not lose this supplemental income stream. Side hustle. Then Ms. Origami notices his watch and calls him out on it. Is that vintage? He says, yeah, but he got it at a flea market. Then gets defensive. Why am I the only caretaker being interrogated here? Makes it about race. Checkmate. For now. The Wyckoff head chalks it up to ineffective dosages. Says he's going to change up Junior's meds. Cut to T on the phone, asking Hesh for a bridge loan. Setting up the arc of an entire upcoming episode. 200K. Note. Hesh is alone at Katz's Deli on Houston Street. Great incorporation of an iconic tri-state fixture. T says he's been on a bad betting streak. And here all this time we're just thinking he's prepping for an impending legal defense fund. Hesh offers reassurance. This too shall pass. And Tony says, thanks, Tatale. That's Yiddish. Why'd T say obedient child to Hesh? Hesh says any time. Was that our answer? He's being loyal to his capo? Nothing more than that? Like once Uncle Polly is now his underling, is Hesh too just a guy he calls up off the bench every time he needs a bucket? T's bell rings and he jumps off. 
answers the door, and jumps on the girl who came over. They both enjoy a smoke afterward. She asks how he knows Peter. That's Beansy. T says, old friend from the neighborhood. Then she asks about the other guy. The one with the white hair thingies. What's he like, your best friend? He say that? Tony wonders. She thought he was his dad at first. And T says there was a time he wished he was. Interesting comment. And again, stuff you'd imagine we're going to see in the movie, actually. He says he used to work for my dad. And she says she knows. He told her already. Tony looks at her like, here we go. This fucking guy again, running his mouth off. And I feel like right there, he concludes that he did tell Johnny Sack about that joke. Back over to Junior. Each tertiary cast member getting their send-off in these final episodes. This is Junior's. He got a response from Cheney's office. No dice. Uncle June's passed out with the letter in his hand when he gets woken up for group. He says ever since his new pills, he's got no pep. He's reassured that that will soon change, but Carter notices what's going on from afar. He comes over moments later to say it's bullshit. They're trying to numb you out. Everything's one conspiracy after another at Wyckoff. It's what's holding these two guys together. Back on Tony and Pauly in Miami, inside the Mercury, waiting on some guy. Probably the Cuban beans he told them about. Car shows up real fast and furious-like. Multiple doors open and lots of guys come out. Feels like an ambush. Tony senses as much. But Pauly hops out against Tony's wishes. Guns blazing, Scarface-like. There's a great overall visual of the guys next to stacked boats. Michael Mann night vibes everywhere. Paulie asks which one of these guys is Ramon. So everybody come tonight except Charo? All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. Commenting on the size of their entourage by invoking the famous singer and flamingo guitarist. Maria Rosario Pilar Martinez Molina Baeza, a.k.a. Charo. Tony settles everybody down, and maybe even putting a little respect on Paulie's name for setting the stage here the way he did. Ramon and his crew interface in Spanish. Then they offer power drills for 50 cents on the dollar. Black and Deckers and Makitas. They say 60K. T counters 55 plus you ship to Jersey. We look like fucking UPS. Tony's thing is they send the truck up and then they'll send it back loaded with shit of their own. Air mattresses, pool toys, fancy shampoo. Tony says you get 5% after sale, but then goes Billy Joel on them and says it's going to involve a little trust. Tony's turning this into a logistics operation. Fucking Expeditors International over here. They agree. They want a long-term relationship. Everybody shakes. Okay, deal. <laughs> Always get a kick out of that. <laughs> Never gets old. Note, Tony half looks over his shoulder as he turns back on them to walk back to the Mercury. Always looking. Until he's not. Back over to Junior. 
Caretakers come in with the meds. How you doing? I'm dying a slow death. That's how I'm doing. Just take your meds, yo. One of the caretakers, of course, is the one on the take. Carter sees what's going on and agitates one of the patients to draw attention away from Junior. And Junior doesn't skip a beat. Throws the pills over his shoulder and drinks the cup of water. Caretakers are none the wiser. Carter's satisfied with himself as we head back to Miami. This contrast between Wyckoff and Miami. Beautiful night down south, decorative lights, colorful shirts, versus bland, sterile earth tones. Tony's talking about Pauly to Beansy. A lot of balls back in the day. But what a fucking chiacchieron. That's chatterbox. Says he told T not to say anything about his prostate. Tony obliges, but then he goes and tells everybody. Beansy says he was always like that. But Tony disagrees. Says he was Gary fucking Cooper. Perhaps the highest compliment he could give a person. T says it concerns him, the talking, lately. There it is. Also, he's confiding in Beansy, same way he might confide in Hesh. Junior's got a surrogate this episode, and now Tony does too. More symmetry. Beansy chalks it up to living alone. He says people get like that. Those people who have nobody. It's sad, he says. And the show elegantly provides a visual of this very thing a bit later. Just then, Beansy's wife comes over to say she's leaving for her card game. Tony thanks her for dinner. And as she leaves, Beansy says, that's what he's got that Paulie doesn't. No wife, no kids. Tony chimes in, no steady income stream either, except for Barone, which is coming to an end, we learn. Wait, did Jason Barone get his way? Whatever happened there? Did the sale to a Lupertazzi family concern go through? We got to wait for more on that front. Tony asks about the importance of legit income. Without it, he says you're vulnerable to the feds. Not being able to prove W-2 income provides more inroads for checking off RICO predicate boxes. Beansy thinks he's worried for nothing. But T says things are going great. That's the problem. Finally. Setting himself up for a reversal of fortune here. Even he knows it. Like we all do at this point. Maybe I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop, he says. Note the motion he makes as he says it. Beansy says Paulie's a stand-up guy. There's that expression again. T, though, has he ever really been put to the test? Great question, and a great way to slip in the introduction of that caveat as a potential series ender. It's starting to come at us from all sides now. But, as we'll see, the obfuscation in my best James Earl Jones voice, is not yet complete. T brings up the painting, the general, the horse. 
Thought it was a joke at first. But now he's not so sure. That's when Beansy doubles down. He loves you, Tone. Here's the key. You're all he's got. Well, especially now, since Johnny Sack's out of the picture. You, the guys, and his image. His image. Andre Agassi said it best as a pitchman for Cannon. Image is everything. Tony softens, says he loves him too. Beansy, you always did. All of a sudden, Beansy's the fucking Southern Oracle in the never-ending story over here. Next, T pulls up to the hotel, walks inside, looks at the valet like, what? Don't say nothing about this fucking Mercury. Inside his room, he enjoys the offerings of the minibar. A Curtis Fields painting directly behind him. Nice throwback to Amor Fu, where a similar painting by the California artist was placed behind Jackie Jr. and Dino. Incidentally, the artist died shortly after this season finished airing. Then, Sil calls. He's with Bobby. Good news this time, though in the form of some writerly maneuvering. Jenna, Karen's sister, that's Bobby's deceased wife, works at the courthouse. And there she found out that Larry Boy said Jackie April was solely responsible. He covered your ass. Recall, this is the fallout from his arrest at the Cleaver after party. But T doesn't celebrate. Yeah, well, you gotta wonder, what's next, huh? Deeply layered. It's all trending there. And though we're confined to the strictures of a television series, it's all pointing towards something bad. It has to, right? We were effectively told how it ends. In the can or the other thing. And we know Tony's not entertaining long-term parking in the can. He gets off the phone breathes a huge sigh of relief in private, another crisis averted. How many more left in the bank, though? He goes outside to take in the view and the waves and the air, but he's disrupted by the sound of Polly laughing, cackling louder and louder. He looks over and sees him watching Three's Company on TV, another direct nod to the show. And of course, the number three. Polly's at the edge of the bed, hands clasped like a little boy, socks off, toes exposed. Every detail only serves to endear you more and more to him. Like no moment before, actually. Almost like you'd be extremely sympathetic were anything to happen to him this episode. Whereas just moments before, we might not care as much. That's writing. Tony drains his drink, seemingly more irritated than amused. The next day, he tells them they got out from under this Willie overall thing as they lay out on beach chairs, soaking it up Miami style as opposed to Satrial style. 
Polly's got a great wardrobe on. The blue with red trim and white stripes. Fucking John McEnroe over here. He wants to celebrate before they head back. Sport fishing, he says. Let's go rent a boat. Polly reluctantly, yeah, sure. Already, echoes of pussy. Also, am I going to have to chip in for that? Back on Junior, talking to his cohorts, more jokes, you know, to keep the mind sharp. They're playing Jenga and doing puzzles. This time nobody cries. At Wyckoff, that's what you call progress. Then Junior heads off to the bathroom. But they ask for one more, and he delivers. But gets lost somewhere at the punchline. Thankfully, Carter's there for the win to clean it up. Their symbiosis seemingly now complete. Finishing each other's sentences now. Everybody laughs. The crier begins to cry. Spoke too soon. And just then, Junior pisses himself. But that's not supposed to happen, the doc says. Not on the new meds. It's designed specifically to avoid incontinence. And curtail his aggressiveness. Junior insists he's taken his meds, which we know, of course, is bullshit. And apparently so does the doc now. They let Jamil, the orderly on the take, go. They found a way to trump the race card. Insubordination. Junior's been made. Even in this place, he got made. Talk about fighting for a lost cause. Quebec. The doc gives Junior two choices. Wear depends while we transfer you to a new facility or take the meds as prescribed. Back in his room, watching $25,000 pyramid reruns, he's more disheveled than normal. Hasn't shaved. His med attendants come by and they watch him like a hawk. Carter tries to intervene again, but sees Junior take the meds this time. Carter's heartbroken almost, devastated. As always, just when you think you have a handle on something in the show, it gets turned on its ear. It's like Junior's going to a place where they can't or won't be on the level anymore. Carter comes in after the door closes. What'd you do that for? Junior simply says he doesn't want to piss himself again. Carter says he could have gotten into trouble all those times. You don't even give a shit. Then Junior looks away. Back at the TV. Because Carter's right. Conditioning from this thing of ours. To survive it as long as he has, you can't give a shit. Not only can't you give a shit, you don't give a shit. Carter's angry at first, but calms down. Still, something's off. Let's get a card game together, he asks. Poor guy's doing a heat check to see if his friend is still on the same frequency. We don't need Jamil, you got me. Maybe tomorrow, kid. I'm tired. That felt like something Carter heard before, too. Maybe from his dad. While ruminating on an insider trading bet, gone bad. Next, Tony and Polly climb aboard their boat for the day. Polly immediately thinks he's done for. 100%. But why? Is he really guilty of something? 
hiding something? Tony hasn't even hug-checked him for wires. Tony says old Ironsides when he sees the boat likening their vessel to the USS Constitution and trying to make a beansy joke out of it to lighten the mood. The actual boat's called Sea vous play. Nice pun on the French word for please. Made me wonder if Paulie's going to be pleading for his life soon. As they pull away, Paulie flashbacks right to pussy. Exactly where we are too, by the way. We see the shots. Remember when. Back on Carter, laying awake in bed. Junior Knox comes in. CDs in hand. Hootie and the Blowfish. Junior's doing everything here except singing, I only want to be with you. Trying to patch things up between them. Did you know their first album, Cracked Rear View, is one of the best-selling albums of all time in the U.S.? Certified platinum 21 times over? That album title, of course, is allegorical in that their brand of music was looking at grunge and attempting to break away from it. Junior mentions the Cheney letter, says they'll have better luck writing to his outfit, Halliburton, even though his actual outfit at the time was the United States government, but that's neither here nor there. He wants to commission Carter for that letter too. Always a con, even subconsciously. Then Junior calls him Anthony, says he's very smart. And that's what this was. That's the reveal, if you will, that this was a version of his relationship with Anthony once upon a time, or a version he wished it to be were he to have been the one to control it. Now that he's had a chance to maybe read Robert Greene's book, The 48 Laws of Power. Back out on the water, great shot of the boat coming at us, swaying from side to side, rocking up and down, optic visual confusion to complement the character confusion conveyed in the writing. Paulie's down below making pasta and gravy, tasting it, then serving it to tea. Rigatoni alla Pauli. <laughs> but since you're eating it, maybe it should be rigatoni alla Tony. <laughs> the awkwardness is palpable. Wait, would he actually jump the gun and poison the food? Take Tony out before Tony got to him first? I mean, it's all there. He doesn't eat, blames it on his fucking stomach. Tony, on the other hand, wears a shit-eating grin. Cut to a hatchet hanging on the wall. A story of what could be. Of possibility. Told through Coppola-esque cuts. Paulie with his eyes closed, catching some rays. The wind. It's back. T says he thought he saw a whale a few minutes ago. Says it made him think of Ginny Sack. Polly musters a chuckle, rubbing his belly. This prick really going to whack me over a little game of telephone? T brings up the joke again. Some funny shit, that Ralph joke. Gauging Polly, reading his every movement, registering the depth of his complicity, his will to hold the line and keep the lie intact. 
After witnessing him blabber everything to everybody up and down I-95 the past couple of days. T says he hears she took an office job. Chubb Insurance. Noticing Paulie's not cracking jokes back. Long beat. Then, it was you who told him, right? Grapevine tone. I don't know. Tries to change the subject to Ralph. The gladiator fixation. The thing with Georgie. Piling on remember whens on top of remember whens to pull out a late game save. But fuck that. Tony's not done yet. Beating a dead horse. Hitting singles. Keeping men on base. T says he'd love to see the look on John's face when he heard that crack. Always holier than now because he didn't hook up with other women. Then he takes a turn and asks Paulie if he's ever been checked for Tourette's. Gets personal. Perhaps to anger him into submission. So he blurts out an admission. He's, of course, coaxing him about his hehe. <laughs> like you got a tick or something. That's him taking out all these years of blah, blah, blah. Paulie, though, likens it to how some people grind their teeth. What's that called? Bruxism? I do it when I'm nervous, tense, or something, he says. Tony sips his drink, squints at him, brings up the joke again. Come on, you told John, right? Paulie looks at T, who's smiling diabolically back at him, swaying up and down. Another long beat. It wasn't me, Tone. He won't break. Either to not give Tony the satisfaction or to protect that image Beansy spoke about. Real old school Gary Cooper move here by Polly. T offers him a drink. Polly says he'll take a Stewart's, the root beer. As T gets up, we cut to the water, then to the boning knife for the fish bait on the floor, then rope. Options. Little messy, but we're over water and the guy's got options, is all. Polly gets up. Might Tony push him overboard? Thinking all the thoughts, is all. Tony wants to do something. He's pissed because he can't. Pissed because he couldn't get Polly to break. He wanted a reason. And to sing it as passionately as that line in the Ubastank song, The Reason Is You. Tony throws the bottle at him. Big fish! Jesus, don't! Fuck that hurt! Tony smirks. At least I got something out of it. And that's that. Back at Wyckoff, singing class now, Take Me Home, Country Roads, of course, popularized by John Denver. Junior's happily singing. The meds really have numbed him out. Carter plays pranks, rolls up paper, and chucks them in front of the piano. Junior notices and looks over disapprovingly. And the camera zooms in close on Carter's face, like a bad action movie. Junior must have given him the same look his father gave him when he was younger. <laughs> 
and was four points shy of a perfect score. He loses it, jumps over the professor, knocks him over, and unloads on Junior, with enough rage baked in there for Tony and what happened to him. A bit of karmic balance is restored as you watch that. Junior's in bad shape, but his glasses are in worse shape. Unwearable. And that's a visual punchline for the rest of the series, as we'll see. Then, Polly returns home. And probably one of the saddest lines of the entire show. What does it take to get something to eat? Crickets. But then, he thinks he hears something and grabs a bat. In the kitchen, he sees pussy cooking fish. After looking at him for a second, Polly asks him when his time comes, will he stand up? Curious question, of course, for a guy who, when his time came, couldn't stand up. Remember? He asked if he could sit down. Of course, it's apparent Polly was having a dream. A sweaty mustache for good effect. Then we see him in his living room hitting the free weights with a vengeance. Prepping for the next time an encounter like that on the boat with Tony happens. Or grinding out a workout to shake the thought that he almost slept with the fishes like his old friend, Pussy. Next over to Tony at home, walks into the kitchen, sees Carmela opening a brand new espresso maker from Polly, from Williams Sonoma, the Electra semi-automatic chrome espresso machine. True story, it's more than $2,000 today. Carm asks what the hell's wrong with Polly, and Tony gets defensive. The ability to compartmentalize is uncanny. From what he thinks of Polly to what he lets Carmela think he thinks of Polly. It's guys like him that allow our whole lifestyle here. <laughs> this just after saying to Beansy that he can't earn. Bringing us back to this thing of ours, over to Doc Santoro exiting into the late night after a massage, and then some. Tells his driver to take him over to Jeanette, his gumad's house. I was actually kind of surprised he had something left in the tank, to be honest. As he readies himself to enter the car, the driver flees. And three gunmen appear and fire in unison. There's three again. He gets one right in the eye. A Mo Green special, or Doc Santoro rubdown. Context and all. Recall, Mo Green was getting a massage when he met the same fate, too. Also, and largely because this is an episode filled with remember whens, this hit looks reminiscent to that of Paul Castellanos. The gunmen escape, and we see Butch as one of the getaway drivers, with the face that read, if Phil can't take matters into his own hands... I will. In a great art-imitating-life moment, note the guys coming out of a restaurant with food. Just walk on by like Seal. Classic New York. Winding things down. Back of the bing. Guys are watching the news. 
about the gangland slaying. Paulie's reminiscing about Feech Lamana, 72-73, a time when Joe Namath walked into Maxwell's Plum, a New York hotspot, especially in the 1960s. Now he's speaking fondly of the guy? Couldn't stand him when he got out of the can and messed with his landscaping racket. Tony comes in, still says it looks like Phil's the main guinea over there now. But Tony can only hear Polly droning on about betting against the Jets upon seeing how fucked up Namath was. But subconsciously, something that will come back to bite him next episode. Then, cut to Wyckoff outside. Canine Companion Visitation Day. Everybody's got a dog. Happy birthday, by the way, to mine, who just turned 12. Long pan through the crowd until we get to Junior, who's turned around on a wheelchair, petting not a dog, but a Siamese cat. Cats will become a theme going into the finale, so hip pocket that. He's got a cast on, his ear is still bloodied, and his glasses are duct taped together. Oh, and he's got no teeth. The camera meanders around him for a beat. Pulls tight, then back. Godfather references aplenty. From one, of course, Don Corleone petting a cat in the opening sequence. And from two, Michael's pensive gaze and his own version of Remember When as the film comes to its conclusion. This completes the Godfather trifecta, too. Everything in threes, right? As we got the tomatoes on the vine at the top of the episode. This episode, in part, was one final hurrah for Junior. And the long gaze before fading to black is an opportunity to remember when with respect to him. And to do it with the gravitas of both Corleones father, and son. My top remember whens with respect to Junior as I prepare this without overthinking it, kind of just riff top of mind. Telling Tony to find his pleasures where he can. Telling Tony about Uncle Eckley and Livia's Virginia Ham. And finally, reminding Mikey Palmici that they're not making a Western. As this episode fades to black, I can't help but find myself becoming Don Draper, remember winning on my own like he did in the perfectly executed Carousel episode. Remember when you called John and a conversation about David Chase led to this podcast? Remember when your son was born and you decided you wanted to live without a rule book so that he would be inspired to one day do the same? Remember when Terry Winter walked into your office and you cried a little afterward because that happened? Remember when you couldn't be there for a friend because you couldn't be there for yourself and how you always think about that? Remember when you saw T in Melfi's chair and everything about everything and nothing? somehow clicked? 
Remember when you made a promise you didn't keep? Remember when you drove through Jersey after having lunch with John Ventimiglia in Brooklyn? Remember when you got a note from David Chase and you pulled over on the side of the road on Highway 395 to read it? Remember when you were having a rough time and didn't know how much longer you could hold on and then your boys greeted you at the door? Remember when you lost somebody and always wondered if they'd still be around if you'd done more? Remember when you did something you thought was truly great, but didn't even get a fucking boutonniere? Remember when Ori hit that shot? Remember when Kaepernick had that run against Green Bay? Remember the moment you heard about Kobe? Remember the moment you heard about Jim? Remember when your team finally won? Remember when you finally won? Remember when Rocky said, one more round? Remember when you realized you were in over your head? Remember when Steve Perry sang, don't stop believing? Remember when you kept shooting your shot and pretended you were Iverson every time the ball, whether actual or proverbial, left your hand. Every time stepping over whatever T. Lou obstacle was in your way. Remember when she could have left you and should have left you but stayed. Remember when she said, I love you. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. Love you guys. See you next time.